Our scripture reading tonight comes from Ephesians chapter 2. This is Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 2, and I will be reading verses 1 through 10. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace, in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. The grass withers and the flower falls, the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come once again to your word tonight, I pray that through it you would reveal to us the glories of your gospel, the glories of the new life that we have in your son, Jesus Christ, one that comes not of works, not of merit, not of our own righteousness, but as a free gift of grace from you. And in light of that great grace and the new life that we have, may we learn to love and honor and serve you as we ought. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is New Year's Day, the first day of the year of our Lord, 2023. The New Year's holiday is always a time about looking back to the old, what has happened in the previous year, and looking forward to the new, what is to come. Perhaps you have made some of the infamous New Year's resolutions. Maybe you're going to work on cultivating new habits. A popular one among Christians is to try to read the whole Bible in a year. That is a good habit to cultivate. In fact, you could, if you read about four chapters a day, read the whole Bible in a year. Maybe you have bad habits that you're trying to get rid of. Certain things you hold to, things you do that you know you shouldn't, that you know are bad for you, and so you've decided enough is enough. Many of these New Year's resolutions deal with health, fitness, wellness, things like exercise, things like dieting, trying to live healthier lives. The problem with New Year's resolutions is they tend not to last. 
That's probably not what you want to hear if you've committed to one on the first day. A lot of people lose their Bible reading plan around Leviticus. A lot of people buy that gym membership only to turn it into nothing more than just a monthly donation without them actually showing up. We're not that good at making ourselves new. We're not that good at even doing new things and being a new sort of people in our earthly lives. Old habits die hard. And in a certain way, these shortcomings of our temporal life give us an analogy of spiritual life. We're not capable of doing much under our own effort. In fact, as it pertains to spiritual matters and spiritual life, we are completely incapable of doing anything by our own effort. In this time of the new year and new beginnings, it is good to be reminded of what is new and how it got that way. We are all prone to thinking that we can and wanting to save ourselves. Well, tonight we look at a text that tells the story of how we are new and how we became new. We are new people with a new life so that we might live new lives. So Paul was writing this letter to the church in Ephesus because he wanted to remind them of the glory of their salvation in Jesus Christ. In the first chapter of Ephesians, that was what he did. He reflected in the first 14 verses of that chapter about the glorious blessings the Ephesian church has in Christ, their election, and so forth. And then in the last nine verses, he gave thanks for their faith. The Ephesians are a people that is in Christ, and for that, Paul is thankful. But now, in chapter 2, Paul turns to the Ephesians' origin story. And it is our origin story as well. It is the story of how they and how we have moved from what we were before Christ into the state of grace, the state of salvation. This origin story is really nothing less than the story of redemption applied. The gospel as it comes to each of us who are in Christ and what this means for our lives. And so we will look at these first 10 verses of Ephesians and their story of the new life in four points tonight. First, we see that we were a dead people. It's what we see in verses 1 through 3. We had no life. We had no hope. But then second, we were made into a delivered people verses 4 through 7. But third, we also were a dependent people. We see this in verses 8 and 9. And then finally, a doing people in verse 10. In light of these glorious realities of new life, there are things that we do. So again, dead people, delivered people, dependent people, and doing people. So first, we look at this idea that we were dead people in verses 1 through 3. Now, we're not talking here about physical death. We are alive, physically speaking. We are here. You are able to hear me talking, and I am able to talk. But rather, we are talking about the dead, lost, hopeless state of those without Christ. Look at the beginning of verse 1. 
And you he made alive who were dead. You can't really make it any more clear than that. What is it like to be dead? By virtue of the fact that you are here and you are hearing me ask this question, you do not know, at least from experience. That is because being dead is a permanent, irreversible state, at least from our human perspective. If you were dead, truly dead, we're not talking about, say, those near-death experiences. They are called near-death for a reason. If you actually died, what would you be able to do about it? Absolutely nothing. You couldn't decide, once dead, once six feet under the ground, to get up, climb out, and start walking around again. Not that you would care. Being dead, your brain function has ceased. Your mind and your soul are not there present in your body. Well, the plight of fallen sinful men without Christ is spiritual death. We were lifeless. We were hopeless. And as we continue in the text, we see just how desperate of a situation we were in. There are several aspects of this death, seven of them, in fact. First, we see that we were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, this is the cause of all death and all separation from God. It began with Adam in the garden. In Genesis 2, God entered into a covenant with Adam, whereby if he did not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would live. But if he did eat of the tree, he would die. Well, Adam ate of the tree, and while he did not immediately die, sin and death entered into the world and have been handed down to every generation since. But this is not just a hereditary problem. It is also an ethical problem for us. For second, we see that these are the sins and trespasses in which we once walked. We are guilty of Adam's sin, having been robbed of our true knowledge and righteousness and holiness by his sin, but we are also active agents and participators in sins and offenses of our own. And this has brought us into a state of death. Physically, we are alive, but spiritually, we are dead, severed from our life and its source. We walked in sin. It was our regular practice, as common as a part of life as walking. It was our course. It was our fundamental way of life. But third, we see that this way of life is according to the course of this world. This world is fallen and cursed by sin. It is passing away with its desires, as 1 John 2.17 says. We were dead and on our way to death in a dying world. Now Paul has already, in Ephesians 1, he introduced the idea of two ages, talking about the present age and the age to come. Here he is clear that he is dealing with the things that belong to this age and have no place in the age to come. He is dealing with the things that are passing away, the things that belong to this age of sin and death. But fourth, we see here that we were participants in the work of the devil. Our walk was not only according to the way of this world, but it was according to the devil. He is here called the prince of the power of the air. 
and the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. But fifth, we were one of these sons of disobedience. Now note in the text, a pivot from the second person where it talks about you, 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 you to we. Paul is showing the universality of this old walk, belonging not only to the Ephesians, they were primarily a Gentile congregation, but also to the Jews and even to Paul himself. Everyone was dead. Everyone was stained by sin in the same way. Now, this is an argument that Paul makes elsewhere in more detail, for instance, in the first few chapters of Romans, when he describes how all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, with or without the law, were condemned in their sins apart from Christ. But sixth, we see that in this state of misery, we were slaves. We were slaves to our base desires. We were living in the passions of the flesh, controlled by the urges of our body and mind. This is life apart from renewal, life apart from regeneration. And not only is it hopeless, not only is it death, but it is destructive. We harm ourselves and we harm others living a life of unrestrained sin. And then seventh and finally, and most importantly, we were children of wrath. Because of this sinful life and walk, we were under God's wrath. That is the most terrifying reality of all of this. God's wrath rests on those who are dead in their sins and trespasses. There is spiritual death now, physical death to come, but eternal death of body and soul in hell to come for those who remain in this state. And that is anyone and everyone who is without Christ. And it was the plight of us without Christ. And truly from this, we see how great our sin and misery are. And if that were the end of the story, we would have nothing but hopelessness and despair. But thankfully, this is not the end. Having looked at us being dead people, we now turn to our second point, delivered people. At the beginning of verse verse 4, we have a glorious pivot. But God. Apart from direct divine intervention from the God of the universe himself, this miserable, hopeless, sinful estate of the first three verses was where we were bound to stay. Now, what's interesting is that in the Greek text, there's actually not a sentence break between verses 3 and 4. This is all one very long sentence. The subject of this sentence being God, who appears in verse 4. So the point that Paul is building to is God's action for us, despite all we previously were. You see here in verse 4 that God is rich in mercy. Our wickedness that we saw in the preceding verses was great. It was right and it was just that we were children of wrath. And yet the God whom we offended against took pity on us. He didn't owe us this. He didn't need to redeem us from our fallen evil state because of any need in him. He would have been perfectly just to leave us there. 
Because we sinned, we fell, we rejected him, we rebelled against him, and we rightly incurred his wrath. But God showed mercy. Now why did he do this? Because of his great love. God is just, but he is also loving and merciful. He loved us not by any virtue of ourselves, but because of who he is. And so he reached down, he came down for us. Paul, in verse 5, catches the weight of this. You can almost hear something of disbelief as he says, Even when we, even we, who were dead in sin and trespasses, because in case the reader already forgot since verse 1, we were dead, miserable, and hopeless. But God made us alive together with Christ. What does it mean to be made alive together with Christ? It is to be made alive in our union with Christ. To be made alive in His resurrection. Paul was reminding the Ephesians and us here of gospel glory. Although we were these miserable, wretched, dead sinners, God the Son, Jesus Christ, entered into this fallen world He fulfilled all righteousness that we had failed. He kept God's law perfectly. And to bear the wrath of God that we were under, as we saw in verse 3, he suffered and died. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the last drop, dying on the cross. But if that had been the end, how would Christ be any different from any man who lived and died? On the third day, Christ was raised from the dead. And in that resurrection, we, his people, are also raised. Eternal life is not only future. Paul is speaking of it in the past tense. It's something that's already begun. We have been raised up. Now, we don't experience the fullness of this new life now. We still live in this fallen and sinful world. We have a limited experience of this new life, this eternal life now. But there is a forthcoming consummation, the not yet, the new heavens and the new earth, where we will experience this resurrection in its fullness. Now this is related to something that Paul said back in verse 2, the spirit of this age. He's talking about what distinguishes This age from the age to come, the age into which we have been brought. And Christ has given us the Holy Spirit. In case it is not readily apparent, though, from what we've already seen, Paul says explicitly in verse 5, all of these things we have received, this new life, this new hope, this new destination, it is by grace. We were dead. Rebellious and sinful. Can't do anything for ourselves if we're dead. But because of his love, his mercy, and his grace, God raised us up. Now this new life comes with a new status. In most English Bibles it says, By grace you have been saved. The way this was constructed in the original Greek, it shows a present state. You are saved, or you are, resulting from a past event, saved. 
Your salvation is not just a single transactional point. You did not just get saved. You are a saved person. You are a different person. You were, after all, dead. But now you are alive. You were an enemy and under God's wrath. But now, by mercy and grace, you are forgiven. But wait, there's more. Look at verse 6. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Not only are we united with Christ in his resurrection, we are united with him in his ascension. He has gone into heaven. There is a sense already in the already where we have gone there with him. But in the not yet, after this life, we will go to where he has gone and our faith will become sight. This is what we see in greater detail in verse 7. Paul here, having talked about the sin and death and futility of this age back in verse 2, turns to the glory of the age to come. There's a sense in which we've already entered this age to come, but we will experience it more fully. This shows us that our salvation is taking us somewhere. It is taking us to eternal life. We were dead and facing eternal death in hell, but we are now alive and looking at eternal life. See Ephesians 2, it is our origin story, but it also spoils the ending. We know where this is going. Dead and miserable as we were belonging to this age, we are now brought into the age to come. What a glorious reality that is. What an amazing work that God has done for us. Yet with this reality can come a temptation. Because we have been given this great favor, because we are delivered from this wicked and sinful world around us, Perhaps that can press us towards being boastful. Look what we have that others don't. But Paul will not stand for this. And so having looked at our former status as dead people, our current status as delivered people, we turn to our third point in verses 8 and 9, another aspect of our present status, which is dependent people. Paul introduced back in verse 5 that, We have been saved by grace. Well, here he proceeds to elaborate on what this grace means. What does it mean for grace to be grace? Well, grace is firmly set against our works, our salvation by works. It's set against moralism. The idea that our good works somehow make us better, that they have something to do in part or in full with causing us to be saved. Here in these verses, which are probably the most well-known verses in Ephesians, among the most well-known in the whole Bible, we see the clear refutation of any such moralistic idea. We see that our salvation is by grace through faith. Now where does faith come from? Well, the answer comes in the rest of that verse. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. When we think of faith, we often think of faith as an act of our own will. When we have faith in something, we are deciding to believe it. But we must also remember 
where the opening of this passage placed us. We were spiritually dead. The dead can't do anything about being dead. And so, consistent with this logic, Paul reminds us that faith is a gift from God. It is nothing that dead people can come up with on their own. God had to give it to us. This faith, this instrument of our salvation, is given to us as a free gift from God. He chose us and granted us faith and made us alive. We couldn't do it. We were and still are dependent on God for our salvation. Now again, this faith is a gift. Think about gifts. We just had Christmas, so some of you probably gave and received some gifts. When you get a gift, did you deserve it? Well, despite some misplaced ideas of entitlement that we could potentially have, no, we don't deserve a gift. If we deserve it, it stops being a gift. It becomes wages, something we got that we earned. We don't get birthday wages or Christmas wages. We get gifts, undeserved, out of the goodness and love of other people. Well, our salvation is a gift that we in no way earned. We didn't have it coming to us, but God gave it to us out of his mercy and love. Now, one implication of this gift of grace is what we see in verse 9. This salvation is not of works. It's not because of anything we did to earn it. Not in part, not in the whole. Not to get it, not to keep it. Because if at any point our works did contribute anything to our salvation, we would have grounds for boasting. We would have something that we could take credit for, something we could point at and say, see, I did that. But we don't. Here, any kind of moralism that makes good works a part of our salvation is prohibited. So on the one hand, this is a statement of condemnation to any who would teach works salvation. And really, any religion apart from biblical Christianity teaches some form of works salvation. You have to be good. You have to do certain things and refrain from others, and that will make you good, and that will make you have favor with God. Roman Catholicism teaches that committing certain mortal sins takes us out of a state of grace, and then we have to do penance, we have to do certain works to get ourselves back into a state of grace. Or we have to keep receiving Mass week after week and do confession and other things to continue to wash away our sins. And since we will almost certainly miss some sins, we'll spend some time in purgatory after this life to finish the job. This is not the gospel. This is not the teaching of Scripture, and it is not the teaching of Paul here in Ephesians 2. Our salvation is by grace. It is a gift from God. It is not started or finished by our works. It is the result of spirit-wrought faith that were it not for God's direct action and intervention, we would not and could not have. We can take no credit even for having faith or believing. Now this gives us proper perspective. 
including in when we deal with other people. We are not better than those who remain in their sin and death. As God has shown pity and mercy to us and done this supernatural work in us, we also ought to show mercy and proclaim this gospel to others so that perhaps God might do the same work in them. And when we are rebuffed and rejected, we recognize that this is not our failing, but rather God's sovereign activity. He grants faith. He granted it to us, and he grants it to anyone else who he grants it to. Now, this also means that we should resist the impulse to elevate those who have certain success in evangelism. Conversion and salvation are God's work from start to finish. He uses means, but those means are useless without him. So Paul has made it clear that works play no part in obtaining salvation. However, this, if misunderstood, could lead to another form of confusion, another error. Something like this. Well, if our salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, then our good works, our doing good, doesn't really matter at all. If we're saved, then we're free to do whatever we please and live however we want and not bother with any law or command of God. Well, this brings us to our last point. After seeing ourselves as dead people, becoming delivered people, but also dependent people, we now turn to doing people in verse 10. While our good works are not a part of what saves us, they are still very important. We see here in the beginning of verse 10 that we are God's workmanship. He has made us. But it's more than that. He created us in Christ Jesus. This is not about our initial earthly creation, but rather our move in union with Christ to new creation. We see this most explicitly in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are a new creation, living new life in Christ. But this new creation has a purpose. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're given this new life in Christ, this great salvation, which we did not receive of works. But the purpose that we are given that is so that we will walk in good works for the glory of God and the love of neighbor. We see that these works were prepared beforehand. God's plan of salvation is not just about our salvation. It is about purposing his people to produce these fruits of thankfulness and gratitude. It is sanctification worked by the Holy Spirit that gives us a new heart and new desires and orients us towards doing what is pleasing to God and to doing God's purposes in the world. We are told that we are to walk in these good works that we were created for. This is not just accidental or incidental. It is the purpose for which we are saved. While our good works do not earn or produce salvation, our salvation necessarily produces good works in us. We're saved by faith alone, 
But in our lives, our faith is not alone. Because God has saved us in Christ and the Holy Spirit indwells us and sanctifies us, we turn from what is evil and do what is good. We are to love God and love neighbor. We strive to keep his commandments. We do this wherever we go and whatever we do and whatever spheres of influence we may have. This is God's will for us. This is God's purpose for our lives. So, we have seen here tonight how we have this new life, but it also produces in us new living. This is God's work in us and for us and through us. We were dead people, lost and without hope. But because of Christ's death and resurrection, we are a delivered people raised to a new life. Now we are a dependent people. This didn't come from us or any inherent goodness or good works in us. But we are also a doing people. Our good works don't factor in our salvation, but our salvation produces good works. It produces loving, living that glorifies God. So, the question is this. Where are you in this story? If you are here without Christ this evening, make no mistake, you remain dead. You are in your sins and trespasses and under the wrath of God. You cannot do enough good or really any good towards saving yourself. Salvation only comes by grace through faith in Christ. And yet, the gospel was once again offered to you. This offer of forgiveness of sins and everlasting life, this new life of which I have spoken, it is made available to those who repent of their sins and believe in Christ. Now perhaps you are here tonight, and you are in Christ, but you are despairing because you do not believe yourself worthy. You don't think that you're good enough. You don't think that you do enough. Well, friend, your salvation is in Christ from beginning to end. Your works did nothing to get you in, and they're not what keeps you in. Perhaps, however, you are in Christ, but you find yourself indifferent to doing good. You take up one of those errors I mentioned earlier, thinking that, well, if I'm saved by grace through faith, then what I do doesn't really matter. Well, one of the purposes for which God has saved you, as our text tonight made very clear, is that he saved you so that you might do good works for his glory and for the good of your neighbor. Because of this great salvation, we ought to carry out this love. And so let us all strive to do good and turn from evil, and fulfill these purposes for which we are given this new life. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that we have heard this evening. We thank you for the glories of the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, who became a man, lived the perfect life we could not, died the death we deserved and fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf. We thank you for this new life that we have through him, the washing away of sins by his blood and this being united to him in his resurrection, which produces this new life and new living in us. I pray that we would all be diligent to fulfill this purpose for which you've given us this life, 
to glorify you and to love you and to love our neighbor. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our final hymn tonight is number 77. The third tune is from Psalm 23, The Lord's My Shepherd. Please stand. keep us. May you cause your face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. May you lift up your countenance upon us and give us your peace. In Jesus' name, amen.